Hey, listeners, a quick word before we start the show. It is Canary Media's birthday. That's right, Canary Media and Postscript Media are partners on these podcasts. They're turning one this week, and to celebrate, they're having a party, a donation party, and we're asking each of you to bring a gift. If you don't already know, Canary is a nonprofit news organization. Part of their funding comes from listeners like you, and your financial support ensures Canary's newsroom continues to cover the solutions to the global climate crisis, and it ensures podcasts like The Carbon Copy and Catalyst list, have a home. So please take a minute to go to www.canarymedia.com and click on the donation button today. We've got a link right there at the top of the show notes. Be part of the solution to the climate crisis and sustain fact-based reporting on the energy transition, because if not now, then when? And happy birthday, Canary Media. Let's make sure there's many more. Thanks. From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. We're in an energy crisis now, and will be for some time to come. We cannot produce as much as we are equipped to use in our homes and our factories. This situation is destined to continue indefinitely. And by indefinitely, I mean not only just the next few years, but as far ahead as we can see. By the 1970s, America was grappling with a new reality. We were no longer producing more energy than we consumed. And in 1973, when Arab countries cut off petroleum exports to the U.S., the price of oil quadrupled. People couldn't get access to gasoline, and our economy shrunk. One out of every seven gallons of oil we'd been using to power our homes, our cars, our businesses, and our schools just wasn't there anymore. This was the Arab oil embargo, and it was framed almost entirely as a supply problem. The amount of energy we were consuming was irrelevant. We just needed to find new ways to feed demand. In the early 70s, when the Arab oil embargo broke on the world like a thunderclap, the energy problem was thought to be, where do we get more energy, more of any kind from any source at any price? It was entirely supply side. We must be able to cope with future emergencies. We must immediately fully use our traditional energy sources. We must develop new sources. And there was a widespread assumption that We must already be using energy perfectly efficiently because, after all, we're in a market economy, aren't we? And everybody else must be, too, and markets are perfectly efficient. So if there were more efficiency that's worth buying, we would have bought it already. That is, until a 28-year-old physicist named Amory Lovins published an article in a 1976 edition of Foreign Affairs magazine, and it completely shifted the framing permanently. The piece was called Energy Strategy, The Road Not Taken. In it, Amory argued we could improve America's energy security through distributed renewables and radical efficiency improvements, decoupling economic growth from growth in energy demand. At the time, it was utter heresy and elicited a furious response from the incumbent energy supply industries because we had a completely different idea of what the energy problem is. He wrote, People do not want electricity or oil nor such economic abstractions as residential services, but rather comfortable rooms, light, vehicular motion, food, tables, and other real things. Such end-use needs can be classified by the physical nature of the task to be done. Not just where to get more energy, but starting at the other end, what do we want the energy for? Like hot showers, cold beer, comfort, mobility, baked bread, smelted aluminum. And for each of those services, how much energy of what 
kind or quality, at what scale, from what source, would do the job in the cheapest way. Amory did something new. He laid out alternatives to fossil fuels and nuclear in a way that showed their clear economic value and their benefit to lifestyles. He explained how to double the efficiency of our economy by the year 2000. These choices may seem abstract, he wrote, but they are sharp, imminent, and practical. This wasn't counterculture, live off the land, break free of the system stuff. This was a blueprint for the clean energy economy. This is the framing that made renewables and efficiency into the viable solutions we know today. At the time, the article was the most shared ever for Foreign Affairs magazine. Emery was called in to advise President Jimmy Carter. And it set in motion the creation of the Rocky Mountain Institute, one of the most influential think-and-do tanks focused on the zero-carbon energy system. Reflecting on the impact, Amory described it like dropping a seed crystal into a supersaturated solution, suddenly crystallizing the liquid into a whole new form. Well, it, it did feel like you got lots of crystals that you didn't see before. And this approach to energy, asking a different question, getting very different answers, is really changing how energy is thought about, how it's done to provide better services at lower cost and make more profit at less risk. Nearly a half century later, we're facing another global energy security crisis caused by Russia's war on Ukraine. Global fossil energy prices are at record highs, and countries are asking, how do we stop buying Russian oil and gas as quickly as possible? But we have much better tools than we used to to turn the disruption into a way not to have to do this again, not to repeat the mistakes we made before, but to tip fossil fuels even faster into irreversible decline. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, Amory Levins on the profound changes underway in the global energy system and how Russia's war will accelerate them. Faced with a surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a Frontier Forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. What is that right? What's that behind you? You have a, a lot of wonderful, luscious plants behind you. Oh, behind me is a 900 square foot tropical jungle. Not exactly what you'd expect because I'm 7,100 feet up in the Rocky Mountains near Aspen, where temperatures used to go as low, low as minus 47F. If you're interviewing Amory Lovins in his Colorado home, you're obliged to ask him about the bananas and mangoes he has growing prominently right behind him. 
The home has no mechanical heating system, it's super insulated, and the greenhouse behind Amory provides all heating needs, along with some good tropical fruit. But this is a passive solar banana farm because we don't have a heating system, and it's cheaper to build that way because you save more construction costs leaving out the heating system than you pay extra for the uh, efficiency techniques that got rid of the heating system. Oh, and by the way, this home was built in 1982. It was totally possible to build a comfortable home or a commercial building without a heating system at all back then. And today's technologies and design principles make it even more realistic now. 1982 was also the year Amory co-founded the Rocky Mountain Institute. And in the decades since, RMI proved that we can grow the economy while radically cutting energy intensity, all without sacrificing quality of life. Well, since then, we've actually cut the energy used to make a dollar of real GDP by 61%. And that barely scratches the surface of how much efficiency is available and worth buying. Moreover, we now have a set of supply technologies that were scarcely imagined then. The notion that solar might become cheap enough to make competitive electricity would be so outlandish, you'd be laughed out of the room. And now in 90 odd percent of the world, it's cheaper to build new solar and wind power than to build a fossil fueled or nuclear power plant. And in upwards of half the world, it's cheaper than just running those thermal plants, even if building them costs nothing. Amory has had a major influence on our ability to imagine what's possible. He's written 31 books and 700 papers, some on energy security and consultation with the military. He's helped design super-efficient buildings, factories, and cars, proving that radical improvements in energy consumption are possible. He's not an oracle, he's just practical, and he has a unique ability to flip our framing on how to solve an energy problem. So I caught up with Amory to hear about how he's thinking about the latest supply crisis sparked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, now that energy security is back at the front of mind, we have extraordinary opportunities to act with speed, agility, coordination, and a much broader and more integrated vision of how to create a secure and climate-safe and healthy uh, energy system. It is, of course, disruptive when the world's biggest exporter of fossil fuels largely drops out of the market. But I think this can be turned into a very exciting way to not have this problem again. Obviously, it is not the way any of us would have chosen to get here. The savagery of the of Putin's war is unparalleled. It's a security crisis like we haven't seen in 80 years, an energy crisis like we haven't seen in 49 years. The extra incentive to stop buying from Russia really brings this to a sharp focus. Over the last four and a half decades, we've radically improved economy-wide efficiency, and we've seen gargantuan amounts of renewables built. But demand for petroleum products, gasoline, plastics, jet fuel, hydrocarbon liquids, they have all steadily climbed. And demand for natural gas continues to climb every year. So what's the story of today's supply disruptions in the wake of COVID and Russia's attack on Ukraine? Why are we... From a, from a demand perspective, why are we just as vulnerable today, even with all these global efficiency improvements? You're right that until just the past few years, 
renewable supplies have added on to fossil fuels rather than displacing and reducing them. But that is starting to change because even before the pandemic, fossil fuel growth in the world was coasting to a halt. And then the pandemic crushed fossil fuel demand for a year or two, while renewables kept on growing much faster, which surprised a lot of people. And the result is that peak fossil fuel almost certainly occurred in 2019 globally. Putin's war really puts the last nails in that coffin, turning what was usually forecast as a bumpy plateau of fossil fuel use for most of the rest of this decade into a steep decline. If you read the what what Germany and the European Commission are doing to get very aggressively off Russian oil and gas and how that is likely to speed up similar actions around the world, it's really a remarkable change. German energy policy just changed more in 10 days than it had done in 10 years. Looking at the scope of today's shock, you wrote, after a half century of experience with supply disruptions, the world is better prepared to deal with the interruption. We've learned a lot about how to save energy quickly via behavior and more gradually by installing more efficient stuff, getting inefficient stuff uh, taken out of the stock and speeding up renewables. You'll notice that with very few exceptions, the European strategy to get off Russian oil, gas, and coal is focused on efficiency and renewables. There's rather little temptation to go look for more long-term fossil fuel supplies because obviously the fossil fuels were uncompetitive before this price shock. They'll be even less competitive with the price shock, and therefore there will be less demand for them. Another way of thinking about this is it's cheaper to save fuel than to buy fuel, let alone burn it. It's cheaper to substitute renewables than to buy fuel. So if you add up efficiency and renewables, it's doubly cheaper (laughs) continuing to buy fuels. Let's talk a little bit more about the direction that Europe is headed in and the monumental shifts in policy that we've seen in the last few weeks. Germany took an interesting path. Since the 90s, it has invested heavily in renewable energy and efficiency and combined heat and power in community-scale renewables. But it has, as a direct foreign policy, invested explicitly in Russian fossil fuels in the hopes that it would neutralize the Russian threat and that greater economic activity in the form of energy sales would bring the countries closer together. And so Germany is obviously reevaluating that decades-long approach to its energy relationship with Russia, and it is now realizing that in a time frame that seemed inconceivable uh, just a few months ago, it needs to try to eliminate its use of Russian natural gas and eventually Russian oil. So how much of an abrupt turnaround is this in a country like Germany? And where does Germany go? It's a very dramatic change for Germany and many other European countries. It now looks like the purchases of Russian gas will be cut by two-thirds this year alone and probably be gone by next summer, at latest next autumn. And what's even more surprising is that a similarly aggressive 
path off Russian oil is now taking shape very quickly. There will be some disruption, some economic pain from these switches, but all the evidence we have so far from around the world is that efficiency of renewables can, with aggressive policy, deploy very much faster than we've done before. The the big surprise for many is that the efficiency resource and what you might call flexiwatts using electricity timely in a way that doesn't inconvenience the user, those resources are about three times bigger than had been thought. And uh, if you combine them with the renewable supply-side revolution, we really have a lot more options than we need. But we, we don't need to wait for miracles. We're going to take a quick break here, and afterward, we'll go deeper with Amory on the solutions. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations. And to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon, and Emily every other week, starting in April, for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's turn now to specific solutions. If Europe, for example, wanted to eliminate Russia's fossil fuels, how would it do that? There are a lot of potential pathways. Electric transportation to cut petroleum use, heat pumps, wind, solar, hydrogen, and renewable gas to offset fossil gas. And then there's efficiency. Not just the change your windows and insulate your house kind of efficiency, although that's important, but the kind of super efficiency that Amory has been living and proving. The rip out your mechanical system and grow tropical fruit in the middle of your house kind of efficiency. I would expect uh, probably half, maybe more, of the energy security, climate, health, and economic solution to our energy problems is going to come from efficient use, the rest from clean supply. The market's going to tell us how these things compete with each other if we allow them to compete. Most policymakers, though, only let supply compete with other supply, not with savings. But if we let all resources compete fairly with each other, we will end up buying a lot more efficiency. We will need less supply. Therefore, we can phase out the fossil fuels faster, easier, and cheaper. And that is, I think, where we're going to end up in countries that really pay attention. And this is not only about installing efficient new stuff, but also uninstalling inefficient old stuff. It's not just in with the good, it's also out with the bad. Let's walk through 
some of the main options that we have. And we'll start with efficiency. When people hear efficiency, they often think of home weatherization, but it's so much deeper than that. And the way that you define it, completely reinventing how we design the weight out of cars, design mechanical systems out of buildings. How are you thinking about efficiency in this context? And how can we ramp up the kind of efficiency, deep efficiency you're focused on in a way that can, for example, eliminate the use of Russian gas? What are we thinking about in terms of time frame for deep efficiency? Faster than we thought. It's not clear how fast it will be. But interestingly, a lot of the extra efficiency we can now buy doesn't require you to go back to school and learn a bunch of new theory. It can be spread just by seeing a picture of different ways to do things. My my favorite example is that uh, half the world's electricity runs motors, half the motor torque turns pumps and fans that move fluids through pipes and ducts. But most installers and designers have paid rather little attention to wringing the friction out of the pipes and ducts. And if you make them fat, short, and straight rather than skinny, long, and crooked, you can reduce friction by 80 to 90-odd percent. In fact, in this building, 97 percent. That means, in turn, that the pumping or blowing equipment gets 80 to 90-odd percent smaller and therefore cheaper. So you end up with lower capital cost. You have this order of magnitude energy saving sufficient to save about a fifth of the world's electricity or half the coal-fired electricity, and you recover your investment in typically uh, under a year fixing old buildings and factories or instantly in new ones. And yet this is this method is not yet in any government study, industry forecast, climate model, standard engineering textbook. Why not? Because it's not a technology, which is what most policymakers look for. It's a design method. But actually, if you show a pipe fitter how to lay out the pipes first, then the equipment, and how to use big pipes and small pumps instead of small pipes and big pumps. Just show her a picture of what that layout looks like. And any smart pipe fitter or plumber will say, oh my God, I could do that. And now I see why it makes sense, even though it looks weird. It's not what they taught us in trade school. Well, if you can spread that sort of powerful efficiency practice that wasn't even on the agenda by images in social media showing a different pipe layout or whatever, that kind of suggests that maybe you could spread it a lot faster than having to retrain everybody because then competitive forces go to work. What about heat pumps? There is a proposal from the environmentalist and writer Bill McKibben that has actually made its way into government policy making in the U.S. There's a real serious consideration inside the Biden administration to use wartime powers to boost heat pump production and then to send those heat pumps over to Europe to for heating to reduce natural gas consumption. What do you make of that proposal and heat pumps as a solution? Well, heat pumps can be several to many times more efficient than, say, a gas furnace. And I, I thought Bill's proposal was creative and intriguing. You need to be very careful about several things, though. Uh, the bottleneck is probably an installation more than manufacturing. Many of the European heat pumps are more efficient than the commodity-grade U.S. heat pumps. So uh, it would actually be counterproductive to send not very good heat pumps. But it, we could actually send if, if they wanted you will also relieve the installation bottlenecks, not having enough skilled installers. 
to put a bunch of heat pumps in quickly. If you focus first on apartment houses, commercial buildings, the things that have big furnaces and boilers burning a lot of Russian gas, but a, a much smaller installation burden with you know one big unit instead of zillions of little ones in individual houses. And of course, very importantly, we need to make the buildings efficient. That makes the heat pumps you need much smaller and cheaper, and you may not need them at all, just as I don't need a heating system uh, here in a subarctic climate. And one of the techniques I think may be especially valuable comes from Holland, although it's it's spread across much of Europe and it's coming now in, in U.S. tests. It's called Energiesprong, which is Dutch for energy leapfrog, and it's a, a way of industrializing the uh, creation at a factory of a kind of tea cozy that bolts on around your house, and then you drop in an efficient heat pump core and a super insulated solar roof. So it, it'll convert badly insulated, air leaky old houses, especially the post-war social housing, uh, into net zero energy houses. And then you stop paying your gas and electric bills because you don't need that stuff anymore. You're, you're running on solar, but instead you pay off the super insulation retrofit a, a, over, say, 30 years. It's a steady bill, and then you own it. This is just about self-financing now, and I think could be scaled rapidly. You've said security beats climate change as a driver of change. It feels like we're witnessing that right now, even in climate-forward countries in Europe that have been thinking about this stuff for a long time and implementing progressive policies, we're seeing radical change in policymaking. Yes, and and I think it's most interesting that this is led in many ways by Germany. They're tripling their pace of renewables, clearing a lot of obstacles out of the way. I think everybody's going to be astonished at how quickly this can work. Remember also that this is a global opportunity when uh, Europe gets in a bidding war with Asia for cargoes of LNG in the short run. That means that Japan and China and so on see the same price as in Europe. So they are equally incentivized to save oil, gas, gas-fired electricity. So this is not only something in a European silo, it's a global opportunity. And that brings in a lot more opportunities to move quickly at scale. Anne-Marie Lovins is the co-founder and chairman emeritus at RMI. Now, normally during interviews, in order to make the room quiet, we need to ask people to turn off their air conditioners or heaters. In this case, it was Anne-Marie's waterfall. Do you hear the uh, waterfall tuned to alpha rhythm or is, is that cut I, out? I can't tell. It's I don't know. Do you have a waterfall behind you? I couldn't yeah. tell. Yeah, so it's probably uh, removed by the auto noise uh, reduction. Yeah, we only caught the waterfall after the interview, so we had to use noise reduction in post-production. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Our Postscript producers are Jamie Kaiser, Cecily Mesa-Martinez, Alexandria Herr, Dalvin Abouage, and Daniel Waldorf. Anne Bailey is our editor. Sean Marquand and Greg Villefranc are our engineers. 
Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. Send a link to this show to a friend or colleague if you think they'd like it. Send us your thoughts on social media and come back next week. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. Copy.